Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. The measure deciding our lives, that our value rises. So you can see that there's quite a a range there, 0.7 to 1, in the estimate of R. The UK government spends 20 million on drugs not yet proven to work. Reports suggest that the government moved to buy this treatment in late March, which is when it was being celebrated as a game changer by Donald Trump. And why the wearing of face masks is splitting Americans along party lines. This is Coronavirus, the latest from The Telegraph. I'm Theodora Leloudis. The UK's infection rate has risen close to the point where coronavirus cases could start to increase. Revised government advice suggests that our value now sits between 0.7 and 1. It shows the average number of people each infected person will infect with the virus. The government says easing lockdown measures depends on the R number not rising above 1. Health officials previously thought that the R was between 0.5 and 0.9. A government source told The Telegraph the epidemic had now largely moved into hospitals and care homes and the number of infections in the community was low. And today, Health Secretary Matt Hancock stressed the R's calculated from data from a few weeks ago and said it's only one measure of success. It is an incredibly important figure for policymakers, but it's one data point to look at alongside also the level of of new cases, as well as um, the R, which is the rate at which uh, they're changing. Um, But um, I think, you know, a change in the range of R um, that still encompasses um, most of the values that we think R could be um, is, um, is, is very important to look at. Uh, but overall, we, you know, this, this report from the scientists says that the R is not, uh, is not likely to be above one. It comes as the government confirmed another 384 people had sadly lost their lives with the virus in the UK, bringing the total to 34,000. In the latest bid to tackle COVID-19, the UK spent £20 million buying stocks of antiviral drugs trumpeted by Donald Trump as potential cures. The Telegraph's global health security reporter Sarah Newey has the story. Major orders have been placed for lopinavir and ritonavir, which is a combination therapy used to treat HIV, And some 16 contracts have been signed in the last two months for chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine, which are used to treat malaria as well as conditions like lupus. But what do we actually know about these treatments? Well, let's start with hydroxychloroquine. Reports suggest that the government moved to buy this treatment in late March, which is when it was being celebrated as a game changer by Donald Trump. I think it could be, based on what I see, it could be a game changer. 
very powerful. Around this time, there were genuine concerns that his optimism was triggering a global shortage. The president is still quite insistent that the drug works, even though there's more and more evidence mounting, suggesting that the results of clinical trials are disappointing. Guidelines published by an American agency have even suggested that the malaria treatment could do more harm than good, with side effects including an increased risk of cardiac arrest. There's also limited evidence about whether lopinavir and ritonavir actually work. Research published just this week in the New England Journal of Medicine found there was no observable benefit in patients who had prescribed the drug. But the UK has countered this criticism by insisting that British suppliers would have sold these drugs on to other countries if we didn't buy them, which would leave the UK in the lurch if later treatments are proved effective. I'm thinking particularly there about lopinavir and ritonavir. And it's undoubtedly the case that you have to move quickly during a pandemic. Hopefully we'll have more conclusive answers about both soon, although it is looking like hydrochloroquine is not not going to be a good option for coronavirus patients. But both of these treatments are included in some really large studies, including one at the University of Oxford called the Recovery Trial and one run by the World Health Organisation called Solidarity. While many European cities begin easing their restrictions, New York's facing a long, hot summer in lockdown. Authorities have extended measures for at least another month. Governor Andrew Cuomo said the infection curve had been bent, but fears remain over a second wave if restrictions were eased. The city's seen roughly one third of the 86,000 deaths in the United States. President Donald Trump vowed to prepare for future pandemics by bringing the manufacturing of medical supplies back to the U.S., but one of the supplies that remains contentious in the country is face masks. Josie Ensel has more. I just don't want to wear one myself. It's a recommendation. They recommend it. Uh, I'm feeling good. When it comes to face masks, nowhere's more divided than the United States. The issue has become the new battleground in America, pitched along political lines. The mask is now a symbol in the brewing culture war over how to contain the coronavirus. With no nationwide rules on face coverings, individual states can now decide whether or not to recommend them. Republican leaders have been less likely to mandate them and Republican voters more likely to forego them. Ohio's Republican governor, Mike DeWine, backed down from an order requiring face masks to be worn in supermarkets. The customer would have to do that. It became clear to me that that was just a bridge too far, that people were, were not going to accept the government telling them what to do. Uh, and so we- On the other side, Andrew Cuomo, the now famous Democratic governor of New York, ordered face masks to be worn in public from mid-April. And I don't get it. I just do not get it. You have to be selfish not to wear a mask now, and you have to be disrespectful of other people. While shops in New York have signs warning they won't let customers in without masks, pictures have circulated on social media of shops in red states with signs declaring the opposite. One in a Republican voting area of California read, No masks allowed. Handshakes okay. Hugs very okay. Some conservatives see it as an impingement of their freedoms. One doctor in Michigan tweeted about having to call the police after one of his patients refused to wear one for their consultation, saying it was their right not to. And this isn't just anecdotal. New research found that how you vote is one of the strongest predictors of one's likelihood of wearing one. In a recent Gallup survey, 75% of Democrats reported wearing a mask outside their homes in the previous seven days. This was compared to 48% of Republicans. The jury might be out on the effectiveness of masks, but members of the White House's coronavirus task force team say it's advisable to wear one. CDC recommends and the task force recommends 
wearing cloth face coverings in public settings where other social distancing measures are difficult to maintain. Still, many conservative voters are taking their cue from President Trump himself, who refuses to wear a mask in public appearances, including during a recent visit to a factory that produces the coverings. Well, I I can't help it if you didn't see me. I mean, I had a mask on, but I didn't need it. And I asked uh, specifically the head of Honeywell, uh, should I wear a mask? And he said, well, you don't need one in this territory. And as you know, we were far away from people. A potential vaccine appears to have provided six monkeys with protection against COVID-19. The trial, taking place in the United States, gives early hopes for the formula, which is now undergoing human clinical trials. The six animals that were injected with the candidate had less of the virus in their lungs and airways after being exposed to coronavirus. It also appears to have protected them against developing pneumonia. The trial involves researchers from the US government's National Institute of Health and the University of Oxford. And it's not the only time you'll hear the British University at the forefront of the global fight against the virus. Hannah Boland reports. Like every UK city, life in Oxford appears to have come to a halt. The streets are almost deserted. A few bikes zigzag across the roads. Buses stop and start, but very few get on or off. But looks can be deceiving. Inside the ancient limestone buildings and vast labs, there's a hive of activity. Oxford University has been the number one research institution for the last four years. Its medical sciences division has been world leading for the last eight. And it's front and centre of the global fight against COVID-19. High profile human trials have begun in the city on a vaccine. The university's Regis Professor of Medicine, Sir John Bell, is optimistic about the likelihood of success. There is one vaccine that looks like it could beat those numbers and perhaps be available for the UK population in September. And that's the vaccine from my institution, developed by the Jenner Institute in Oxford. But it's not just in the vaccine space where Oxford plays a leading role. Scientists at the university have been heavily involved in the work around antibody tests, and companies based in the city have pivoted resources towards the research. Oxford Nanopore, for example, which normally works on DNA sequencing, provided some of the chemical reagents needed to carry out antigen tests that detect if someone has COVID-19. The company had a relationship with an existing supplier and offered to help after the government warned of a shortage. Another company called Nevenio, which came out of Oxford Computer Science Department, used its location technology to create an Uber for hospitals, technology that locates staff and matches them to the nearest patient task. The striking thing about many of these companies is that the work is done on a non-profit basis. As Jim Wilkinson, head of Oxford Sciences Innovation, told me, there'll be enough time for companies to make money later. The vaccine's work with AstraZeneca and partner Vaxitech, also in Oxford spin-out, is all being done on a not-for-profit basis. While a noble decision, it presents questions over the future of the Oxford University ecosystem. For years, it's faced criticism for having groundbreaking tech ideas but struggling to turn them into commercial successes. Funding packages tabled by the Treasury don't yet really benefit these research-intensive early-stage companies. What's clear is that these businesses are playing a crucial role. And while scientists in the city may not be dealing with patients every day, the leaps they're making will be vital to stem the spread and save lives. 
As a journalist, I'm acutely aware of the role of numbers in this pandemic. Much of my job these days involves sifting through them and trying to work out what they actually mean. In fact, data journalists seem to have rather become the rock stars of the newsroom. I've never known such a dry sounding job to have done a 360 in such a short space of time. Emphasis there on the sounding. That comment will be a good test to see if my data journalist colleagues listen to this show. But there's been a deluge of numbers since the start of the pandemic. And it's those numbers that really help us understand the patterns of the virus to help us defeat it. But they're not always easy to get your head round. And on this week's episode of The Telegraph's short documentary series on the pandemic, we're looking into the essential numbers behind COVID-19. From testing to infection and hospitalisation and death rates, we find out how reliable they are and what exactly they reveal. I've recommended this Telegraph Decodes video series before, but it's a really valuable way to spend your spare 15 minutes over the weekend. Just make sure you spend them listening to this show again on Monday, when I'll be back with your next update linked to the documentary of course in the show notes if you've been finding these podcasts helpful i'd really appreciate it if you could leave a five-star rating and maybe even a short review on apple podcasts it really helps other people find the show thank you so much to those who have done already if you have a question or a topic you think we should be covering email me the address is coronaviruspodcast at telegraph.co.uk this is coronavirus the latest from the telegraph i'm theodora leludis 